this time, I want to dismiss the kids with Mr. Maisie in the back in his cool blue, is that blue t-shirt? I only know primary colors. It's some shade of blue. <laughs> he just said, you kids have no idea. That's what he said as they went back <laughs> what they're in for. Welcome to Renovation Church again this morning. We're glad that you're here. And uh, I'm glad you're here. My name is Jeremy Callie. I am one of the elders here. Um, and I'm excited to be with you this morning. And the topic this morning, as we continue our series on parables, is uh, it's a gracious one. But it's not an easy one. So prepare yourself for this. Um, and please uh, stay with me on this one. It's, it's gracious, and it's a loving word from Jesus. But this is a passage where Jesus' words can be tough to hear. How many of you guys have read some of those passages before? But it's gracious. And it's loving. And it's his grace that he gives us this warning in Luke chapter 13. Now, my assignment was Luke chapter 13, 1 through 9. I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to start in Luke chapter 12, verse 49, and read through to 13, 9 with you this morning. So if you have your Bible, take a look at that. And if you don't, it should be up on the screen, or I'm sure you can get a free app on your phone, right? Luke 12, verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one's house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Well, we could have guessed that one, right? And daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before a magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you into the judge. And the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you'll never get out. Till you have paid the very last penny. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think 
that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should I use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it. Put on some manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. God, I pray that you would help us hear from your word this morning. Speak to us as only you can. You know the state of our heart. And I pray that you would dig into it. Help our hearts to be receptive. Help our hearts to be awakened to your words. God, graciously give us the ability to hear from you and be changed. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. How many here have been through basic training in the military? One, two, three. A few of you guys have been through it. I was reading a story in the Washington Post this morning, actually, and I was thinking about that. And my, my, uh, my, perception, oh, my perception of basic training is, you know, full metal jacket, right? I mean, I, <clears throat> I've actually never been there. I've only seen it in the movies. Or now you can watch the History Channel and see kind of what the SEALs go through or what folks go through. But every depiction I've ever seen of it is it's not pleasant. Is that fair? It's harsh. It is screaming. It is yelling. It is in, intense physical um, testing and endurance. It is at a moment, I, I was reading about this Mojave training that the Marines go through where there is intense live fire where the Marines are in almost as real of a situation as they can put them in without actually shooting at them and you know, setting off rounds, setting off explosions, having them um, with little sleep and little comfort interact and make decisions and have to consciously go through particular activities where they can still um, make a good decision amidst live gunfire and explosions and difficulty. Why? Why such a harsh treatment? Because what? The anticipation is they're going to be in a life or death situation where they have to be able to make those decisions. I was reading in the Washington Post this morning about a young man. Um, his name is Emron Youssef, who is a Marine who was in active duty in Afghanistan in 2011. And it wasn't so much what he experienced in Afghanistan that prepared him for this. It was more, as he articulates it in the newspaper article, his training as a Marine through his basic training in that particular Mojave um, training that he went through as a Marine. I'm sure I'm quoting that wrong. That prepared him for a night when he was working the door at a nightclub in Orlando and shots rang out. And Irman Youssef recognized the high-caliber gunfire in a small, crowded nightclub where he was working 
and he immediately knew what it was. And as people near him rushed to the back door and began to be packed into a particular area, a lot like sardines, in the midst of panic or in the midst of um, numbers of these people, unable to make a decision, unable to clearly think about what to do next to get out of there, he, upon hearing the gunfire, recognized what it was, thought clearly, and realized that this 70 people packed into this back area were actually standing right in front of a door that if someone would just unlatch it and open it, they could all get out. And he quickly made a decision to put himself in danger, to potentially be shot by the gunman, and he jumped over um, the area where he was, and he went, and he thought clearly and unlatched the door and began to tell the panicked people, this way, this way, and they credit him with saving up to potentially 70 or more lives that night during the Orlando shooting that just happened. It, it's got to be the harshness this Marine went through, the, the experience that he went through, the, the training that he went through that enabled him to think clearly in a moment where everybody else in the midst of their panic and the emotion of their brains registering what was happening in that nightclub, they had an inability to simply open a door and get out, but he was able to do it for them. And, and I thought about this in the context of this message today, because here's what I recognize about our lives. We're walking through them, thinking things are important, and going through life, and sometimes not thinking clearly until someone like Jesus comes through his word and speaks to our heart what may seem like very, very harsh words, but are just the very thing that we need to wake us up and shake us out of what we're doing so we can recognize that we are in the balance of life and death, perishing and not perishing. Amen? That's what Jesus does in this passage. He speaks directly to our heart with harsh words. So here he is speaking with Jewish people in this uh, passage. And his words are gracious and loving, but they're, they're harsh. Almost in a way that a parent would yell at a child who's running towards the road. Or, or yell at a little toddler who's walking towards a hot stove, right? Stop it! Don't move! Don't put your hand up. You ever yell at your little toddlers? They're heading towards danger in a way that scares them and they turn and cry. And you would think, oh, that was mean. No, it wasn't mean. We just, you're speaking in such a way that saves the child's uh, life or saves the child from, from hurting themselves. Jesus does this. First, in, in verse 49, chapter 12, Jesus gives an idea of why he came. And it's not the idea that I think is commonly thought of, right? We, we see these wonderful paintings of Jesus. He looks British with blue eyes. He's floating around with a with a robe on, and he, he looks so incredible. This is not the Jesus of the Bible who says, I came to bring fire. And he says in verse 49 and 50 and 51 that I am so concerned for my baptism. I am so concerned for my mission that I am distressed about it. Jesus 
is explaining to them how important and how vital the mission is. And that it is a mission where there is great fire. It is a mission where there is great passion. And there is great concern over what he's called to do. And it takes precedence over all the menial things that people normally think about. To the degree that he would ask people to so stand up for his mission and for who he is and who the word declares him to be, that it would be divisive between them and their very own families. How many of you have been in that situation in your faith where folks have potentially disowned you or thought you to be somebody that they no longer want to spend time with because of your love and your faith in Jesus? I mean, I think we think about it here because sometimes I think in America we don't experience this as much. Years ago, Matt and Sarah and I were uh, with folks down in New York City doing some worship for a pastor's conference. It was an international pastor's conference. And there was folks there from Syria, from Egypt. Uh, Actually, at the time we were there, the pastor from Egypt was preaching while he's getting text messages about protesters storming his church and throwing rocks through the windows and and Christians being killed. Many of the Syrian pastors that we were with that weekend probably are not alive today, given ISIS has moved through Syria and they're killing of Christians. But what we heard from them is, is these folks who converted to Christianity, whose parents disowned them, right? Who, Who would have rathered them been dead than become Christians. And they've experienced, in a real way, what Jesus is talking about here. And we've experienced it, many of us, in dif- differing ways to the degree that, that folks have maybe not uh, been as gracious to you because of your faith in Jesus. But Jesus says, listen, I'm coming with fire. I'm coming with a mission that is of great concern. And it'll bring division even between you and your own family. And he says to them, look, you know the weather. He begins to talk to him about the weather. You folks understand the weather. You are so capable of judging where the wind is coming from and whether or not there's going to be a scorching heat or judging where the wind is coming from and whether or not there's going to be showers and great rain that comes upon the earth. And why would they be so concerned with these things? We're all concerned about the weather, right? What is the one app you get without downloading every time you get a phone? The weather app. Why? Because we all want it, right? We all have concern about the weather. I, I am less organized than some in that regard. I often do not bring my umbrella when I need it. And every time I carry it, it's guaranteed not to rain. It's the moment that I have it in my hand or don't have it in my hands where it, it downpours, right? But I know some folks that are serious, right, about weather. My father-in-law, Bob. Serious about weather. He's like a an amateur meteorologist. Anybody else like that? The dude has always got the satellite up on his phone. Come on. I mean, we'll be talking about whether or not we're going to the game. You know, one of the kids' games, and he's looking at the satellite. Yeah, I think it's going to miss us by about. You know, he's he just knows what's going on with the weather. Any other weather app people here? I got a couple. Okay, Matt. Anybody? Else? All right. Obviously, their concern about the weather was a little bit more integrated into their culture because of crops and because of being an agrarian society and needing to know if the earth was going to be scorched or if there was going to be a lot of rain. How was the harvest going to be? And so these folks who did not have satellite and didn't have weather apps were able to actually figure out some stuff by judging the winds and and, and looking at things so that they could 
gather the information to understand. Is it going to rain or is it going to be a scorching heat? And Jesus addresses that to them. You're interested in the weather. Take great concern over that. You take great concern over disputes that you have with somebody over money to the point that you take them to court. And he speaks of judgment. And what Jesus is getting at in this moment as he's speaking to these Jewish folks is that you're concerned about, about a lot of things, but the question is, have you repented? Do you have concerns about eternity in your everyday life? You have great concern about things every day that have to do with weather or judgment. But what he's asking them is, do you have great concern or are you prepared for eternity? I know what I think about every day. And I think that this passage comes to us as a wake-up call. What are the things that concern you every day? What are the things that you and I think are just so important? Right? What are the things that we spend our time arranging for? Is everything ready for work? Is everything ready for the kids? Is everything ready for our vacation coming up? Is everything ready for what, what I'm doing this weekend? Is everything ready for my golf trip? Is everything ready for uh, my job? Am I prepared on Sunday afternoon to start Monday morning? Are we prepared weather-wise? Are we prepared as our laundry done? Are we prepared uh, for this or for that? And there's so many things that take up our concern, that take up our time, that take up our mind and our energy. And what Jesus is saying in this, mo in this moment is are you even thinking about eternity at all in your life? He's saying, let's have a little perspective here. We have a guy at work who just doesn't get social cues. Anybody know that guy? You know, he just stands there awkwardly outside of a conversation and then brings up a story that everybody's like, you know, come on, listen, if you don't know who that person is, it may be you. So <laughs> everybody's got one. It was the dude in school, right, that always raised his hand and asked the question that was like, <laughs> what is he talking about? <clears throat> and he comes into the conversation, and he'll talk and, 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 and bring up something that, that is, is outlandish or just doesn't fit in an attempt to be a part of the conversation. Jesus here is trying to get us to focus on, to think about, to hone in on what matters, what is really important, what is the topic of the day. He says, you know about the weather, and you think about going to court to, to settle your disputes, but you don't even understand the times in which you live. And so they bring up a story to him, and they say, Jesus... What about the worshipers who Pilate sent the soldiers in to kill and their blood was mingled with the blood of their sacrifices? 
And Jesus addresses that story and then brings up another one of his own. And Jesus says, yeah, and what about the 18 that were, con- that were killed in, in what amounts to a construction accident? As they're by the pool of Shalom and the wall that is there tumbles on them and kills 18 people tragically. And so Jesus is addressing two tragic stories of people dying as they brought this to his attention and wanted him to address it. Now, we don't know historically uh, much more about these two particular stories. Josephus or no other historical books really cite them or mention them, which only, which only tells us this, is the only detail we have about the stories is what's documented and, and memorialized in the book of Luke. But here's what we know. We know that there was folks that were worshiping, and what they were doing to worship in this particular feast is they were, they were, they were um, coming for the Day of Atonement. They were uh, dressed in their robes. They were coming for their, tin, for their sins to be atoned for, and they had come into the temple and prepared themselves uh, to worship God and to sacrifice in the temple um, as a picture, as a foreshadowing of Jesus and what he would ultimately do for us once and for all, but they were killing the sacrifice in the temple and putting the blood out there so that it would atone for their sins. So they would worship God and ask God to forgive them their sins as they brought the spotless sacrifice before them. And what must have happened is Pilate sent some Roman soldiers in and they slaughtered these people in the temple to the point that their blood was actually mingled with the blood of the sacrifices that had been there. Jesus takes this opportunity to address a mindset. Jesus uses this opportunity, in essence, to destroy this idea of karma, right? I mean, there was a lot of karma-type preachers back then. And to quote Pastor Mark Driscoll, Driscoll, Jesus basically says in this passage, karma's stupid. That's what he says. You know, the thought back then, as they brought this story to Jesus, was... Were these people worshiping in the temple bad people? You know, ultimately, karma leads to, honestly, cruelty. That bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And, and, and we all know, do, do bad things happen to good people? Come on. And so Jesus is attacking this mindset of the karma-type preachers of their day. And he's saying, so, so you say that these people were were." murdered while they're worshiping how about the 18 people where the stone wall fell on them and killed them in the construction accident what do you think of that do you think they were any more or less sinners than any other galilean and he destroys this idea of karma where you know think about it for a minute if you were to believe that you would have to believe that these folks who are actually going to worship were killed because they're bad you'd have to say that you know karma can bring rage to somebody when you think about someone who's innocently killed or tragically taken and, and you say, well, they must have been bad. It's karma. Jesus destroys that idea. Honestly, who is the best person? I think Jesus was, was God, right? So he, he's good and everybody else isn't. That's what we understand from Scripture. And what happened to him? He went to the cross. On our behalf. So Jesus uses these stories and he, dress, he addresses this mindset of karma. But here's what else he does. is he, he wants them to begin to think about death. Look at this. There was some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think about the Galileans? Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? 
because they suffered in this way? And of course, the resounding answer is no. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you're going to perish. And Jesus, in this passage, gives us two options. Repent or perish. Well, that's a paradigm shifter, isn't it? We don't talk about repentance in hell very often, do we? In fact, some, some people might say, well, I listen to the preacher who, who only talks about self-improvement and, and, and just being a better person and, and how I can be um, a better leader and how I can be more skillful in my life and how I can be happier and how I can be healthier. And, and, and what Jesus is doing here through the scriptures is coming right at that and saying, this is not what it's about. He's saying, think about death for a moment. We don't like to think about death, do we? Here's what Jesus is saying to them. You are going to die. That's his word to us this morning. So grateful that I get to preach it to you. Amen. You're going to die. So am I. Many of you here may live for a long time and die years from now. Some may die tragically. Those folks in the Orlando nightclub did not think they were going to die that night. As a prosecutor for the last 10 years, I have been on hundreds of crime scenes or vehicle and traffic accidents. And if there's anything I've ever learned from seeing those horrific scenes, it's that life's fragile. So here's his word to us today. You don't know the day or the hour. Stop worrying about the weather. Stop worrying about your disputes. Stop worrying about meaning, meaningless things. Repent and think about eternity because we're all going to die. That's his word to us today. What am I spending my time concerned with? Is it eternity? Is it living a life of repentance? Or am I worried about what the weather's like today? Am I so concerned that all the, the, all the energy of my mind and all the energy of my life is spent trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my kids and figure out my leisure entertainment and figure out how work is going and figure out how I'm going to save enough money to have the things I want and do the things I want and go the places I want. And what Jesus is saying is, is you may not even live long enough for all of that. You need to be concerned with eternity and you need to come to a place where you repent, meaning you do this, you recognize your need for God. You rely on Jesus Christ and his free gift of mercy to you. And your life turns from sin and heads the other direction. Amen? That's what he's calling us to do this morning. So he tells the story of the fig tree. He says, man, this thing, the vine dresser says, this thing hasn't borne fruit in three years. 
Why am I wasting this soil? Why am I wasting this ground with this fig tree when every year for the last three years I come to it and it is bearing nothing? I'm going to cut it down and destroy it. And the person who cares for the field says, give me one more year. Let me dig around the fig tree, do something with the soil, work it up, water it, and, and, and do something in there that begins to, to give it a chance to bear fruit again. And then next year, if you come back and there's fruit, great. And if you come back and there's not fruit, then we'll cut it down. Every year, I'm going to wrap up. Every year, I take time consciously, usually around New Year's, and I think at the year, I think of the year before. And I ask myself an introspective type question that actually takes some time. Did I grow this year at all? My walk with the Lord. Have I grown this year? What did I do this year? What did I accomplish this year that means anything, that makes any sense? And I have this introspective moment. We have this thing called the Protestant Reformation, right? And this, this, this is a moment in history where, where the church changed and, and, and Protestantism was birthed. And, and I'm not here to talk about Roman Catholicism or Protestantism. Uh, I'm just... I'm just going to say here that there was a moment where this, this Catholic priest, Martin Luther, um, decided that there were some things in the Catholic faith and theology that had walked away from the Word of God and that were not good theology. And what he did is he, he wrote these 95 theses and he posted them on the wall at Westminster. Is that what it is? And, and, and it, was, it, was a, it was a door uh, of this church where they would commonly post things for people to discuss and debate theological issues. And this... Many of us, many, many historians believe is, is one of the things that spurred or began, launched the Protestant Reformation. And I, I say that to say this. It's interesting. The number one thing of the 95 theses that Martin Luther writes, the number one thing that he writes is that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. And he quotes Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, where Jesus says, From that time Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he quotes this idea of repentance, and he says, The entire life of a believer is to be one of repentance. And so here's what the Lord, through his word, is asking us to think about. It repenses, repentance is, is one thing that brought us to God, that began our faith, is we repented, we recognized our need for God, we recognized the depth of our own sin, we rely our entire life, the weight of our life is in reliance of the work, in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf, and then the grace and the free mercy that God gives us by being our substitute, the one who paid for sin, then begins to regenerate our lives and cause us to continually throughout our life, what? Repent and turn from sin. Repent and turn from sin. Meaning that it is, is the gospel is at work in our lives and continually grows in us 
There's a fruit of that. Someone who has truly repented actually is a tree that bears fruit. If there's fruit in your life, it's evidence that something actually happened and is continuing to happen in your life. But if you're sitting there and there is no fruit of repentance in your life, I think you need to take a minute and introspectively take a look at whether or not you've actually repented and relied on Christ. Because Jesus gives us two options this morning. Repent or perish. Amen? And if you have, let's take a look again. As our entire life as a believer is a life of repentance. It's continually recognizing my sin. Continually recognizing my need for the cross. Letting the Holy Spirit of God put his finger on different areas of my life. As, as areas that are of primary importance for me to have great concern. As Jesus' mission gave him concern and he brought fire. It should be a fire and a passion and a desire and a concern of mine that I continually repent and change and turn from sin and walk towards Jesus so much more than the weather. Amen? It is so easy for us to have very American, fun, breezy lives of faith where we blow in and out of church and check our boxes and say we believe in Jesus and intellectually assent to the gospel, but where faith has little effect and concern in the kind of fire that Jesus is talking about to the degree that we live a life of repentance. Would you say that's true? Jesus says, think for a minute. Those folks didn't die because they were bad. They just died. And now is your opportunity because you're still here to repent. His grace is that there's enough time right now for us to repent. There's enough time for us to set aside the silly things that entrench and, 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 and get us so concerned. Set those things aside. There's time for us to be concerned with the things that really matter. That's our own repentance. Here's the amazing thing about Jesus and repentance. is It is a free gift. This isn't about your work. It's about your reliance. This isn't about what you do or don't do. It's about the, the concern of your heart and your reliance on Christ for his grace and his substitutionary sacrifice and allowing that to, to so work in your life that you begin to continually repent and turn away from your sin and turn towards Jesus. Amen? What's the primary concern of your day? Last week, Mike talked about our wallet. I think the message is continuing in this section of Luke from Jesus in these parables. He's asking you, what's the concern of your day? Your job? Your yard? Your vacation? Your diet? Your leisure? Your fun, your entertainment, 
your money. Here's a big one. Your kids' stuff. Your house. I live in a community where the massive concern of the life of a lot of us is that our kids are just fantastic at everything they do. They're in every sport that you could ever imagine. They're doing everything they could always do. And I, and I, I looked at Aiden this morning as we were driving to church. And I was talking to him about worship. And I said to him as I was kind of saying to myself, by the time you leave my home, the only thing you know is that you're good at lacrosse and good at wrestling and got good grades, know how to get a job and maybe make some money, but you don't know what it means to worship Jesus. God, I failed him. But am I more concerned that he gets to his athletic events than I am that he's here learning how to worship God? Am I more concerned that he gets his homework done, which I am, make no mistake. Am I more concerned about that than the state of his heart and his repentance before God? I think maybe the word of God is saying to us this morning, we need to reevaluate. Amen? God, we thank you for your words that pull no punches. Almost as if to jump into the water of a drowning man and as he pulls at his rescuer, the rescuer just pops him in the face to knock him out and render him unconscious so he can bring him to shore. Sometimes we need to be smacked. Your words that cut to our heart, that remind us of what truly matters. God, help us all to live a life of continual repentance and reevaluation. Help us to think on eternity, knowing that our time is short. Help us to focus on the things that you say matter. Thank you that you save us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Help me to turn from my sin and walk towards you in a way that matters and in a way that means something so deep in my heart that I have this great concern and fire for your mission. And your purposes in my life. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen.